And today's crisis is... A Christmas Carol! You can't go wrong with a Christmas Carol. Welcome. I'm Ben Schultz. I'm Nora Schultz. And this is Trying to Adapt. And today we're trying to adapt to Adventures from the Book of Virtues episode something, The Story of Compassion, a.k.a. A Christmas Carol, parts one and two. Let me just say that this one took a lot to adapt to. It didn't take nearly as much adapting on their part. Oh no, this is... Barely an adaptation, to be honest. So we have been looking at, and we will be looking at, adaptations where they use existing characters to stand in for the roles within the story. This is an example of that, kind of. I really hope nobody was expecting this podcast to go in, like, chronological or order of importance. Um, you might be wondering, hey, why haven't you talked about any of my, like, favorite classic Christmas Carol adaptations? Well, part of the reason for that is because I'm a high school student and I have a lot of homework. As time goes on, and especially episodes coming out after a weekend, um, we'll probably get deeper into longer adaptations, but... For now, you're just going to have to deal with stuff like Gorgo's A Christmas Carol and Adventures from the Book of Virtues, A Christmas Carol. Adventures from the Book of Virtues, by the way, is as conservative and Christian as you are imagining. It was created by, was it William Bennett, the Secretary of Education under Ronald Reagan? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's what you're imagining. It's it's an interesting story for a conservative to try to adapt because... It's a very anti-conservative story with a message that very directly attacks wealth and capitalism. Yeah, this version in particular, we're really going to be paying attention to what is not mentioned, because I think that tells a better story than what they chose to include. It's just interesting to me that it's a story of compassion. That's not really... The word that comes to mind when you look at the original story and most of the adaptations that have been made of A Christmas Carol, the first word that comes to mind is not compassion. No, I think compassion is an important part of A Christmas Carol, but I think Charles Dickens wasn't just saying, be nice to people. He was talking about a very specific kind of kindness that obviously might um, make Mr. Reagan fan over here a little uncomfortable. We have never seen any part of this show before. I assume that these characters have been established elsewhere. It's kind of like the, um, Gorgo's A Christmas Carol. We don't know anything about Gorgo or the Nosferatu puppet, but we're just judging what they're giving us. So, Adventures from the Book of Virtues, as far as we can tell, is about a couple of middle or high schoolers And then also some talking animals who live out in the forest and help them, like, come to moral decisions. Also, these animals are named after Greek philosophers, Mm -hmm. but they're not very smart. 
Except for the bison named Plato. He's got this kind of wizened archetype going on. Basically, they come to Plato for moral decisions, and then the rest of them are just there as comic relief. Socrates and Aristotle. The episode begins with two of these ambiguously aged children, well, several of these children, playing the roles of characters in A Christmas Carol, which I really appreciate, and I think it would have been, like, kind of cool if they had kept going in that direction, like, just having the characters just straight up play these roles. Um, it gets pretty wild, though. That's not what they do. Yeah. We get a little bit of a glimpse into the adaptation within the adaptation of A Christmas Carol that they're very briefly trying to put on. One of the few things that we do actually see is the scene where the charity collectors come to Scrooge. And in this version, he doesn't just reject the idea of giving them money. He actually says that they are a humbug. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries, sir. I say humbug, gentlemen. Which, if you, the listener, don't already know, humbug is not just a thing that Scrooge says. It's an actual word, and it means, like, a fraud. So I guess what he's doing here is he's calling the concept of charity itself not only, like, overly saccharine or unnecessary, but a fraud. Yeah, I mean, normally his humbug insult is directed towards Christmas. He's calling Christmas a fraud because, you know, like, it makes poor people celebrate what they don't have or whatever. But no, here he's directly calling the tax collectors frauds, which is, or not, the, the charity collectors, which, um, that's new. And he calls Marley a humbug. Again, like, they're friends. No, no, no. I mean, in the original story, he calls the spirit of Marley oh, a humbug. Oh, yeah, you're right. But then we learn that the actual Scrooge stand-in, and yeah, it's pretty obvious from the beginning, um, is the president of the drama club, Annie. Now, I will say right now, as a treasurer of a high school drama club, drama clubs don't, like, decide what shows are being put on by a school, nor do they handle the financials. I'm saying that as a treasurer. Nor do they, like, they don't decide where the money from the shows go to. They don't direct the shows. That's the job of a theater teacher. Yeah, this story seems to take place in a world where there are basically no adults. We see one adult later on. Oh yeah, for like two seconds, and he's an asshole for no reason. But these kids like go to school. They don't seem to have teachers. Yeah, the only times that we see them at school are like this poor girl Annie overworking herself trying to figure out like how to manage the drama budget. Like, she's like 13, maybe. It's really unclear. We don't know. Maybe if we watched the other episodes of Adventures of the Book of Virtues, we would know more about what's going on here exactly. So basically the premise is, do you even remember the guy's name? Zack. Zack, okay, yeah, see that's how little of a character he is. Zack is dead set on doing the annual Christmas Carol play. And the extra revenues from this play go to fund the local orphanage. Keep in mind extra funds. That'll be important to keep in mind as we go along. It'll be important to remember as I point out my main criticism with this version. Extra funds. Because this high school drama club is apparently a for-profit operation, and 
in order to continue producing shows, they need to use the money that they earned from ticket sales of previous shows. So if not enough people buy tickets to the Christmas show, they need to make a decision between continuing to have a drama club exist and giving money to the orphanage, which doesn't seem like a great system. Well, I mean, I will contend that, yeah, I mean, like, money from ticket sales and advertising does go into the, like, set and design budget for other shows, but this is not handled by the students themselves, nor is it like, oh, we didn't make enough ticket sales, look like we'll never do another show again. Um, Maybe this is just the conservative Republican world that the creators of the series want to produce. You looked it up? Our mom just came in and pointed out that these kids, according to Wikipedia, are actually 10 years old, which makes it even weirder and even worse than we originally thought. Apparently this is like an elementary school where the kids are forced to deal with all of the financial and creative decisions necessary to put on a school play. That also makes the weird scenes with romantic subtext weirder between Annie and Zach. So to get into the plot of the episode. Oh yeah, so I was saying earlier, the premise. I got a little hung up on talking about their Christmas carol. So Annie makes the executive decision, apparently she can do this, that instead of a Christmas carol, they're going to put on a, like, she describes it as like a space musical with gymnastic, like, it sounds fantastic. I'm not gonna lie, I would much rather see that show than like an elementary school Christmas carol. It's called I'm Dreaming of a Galactic Christmas, and we never find out anything about what happens in it or why people would want to see it beyond just the title. The story about alien civilizations that come together on Christmas Day for universal tranquility. It's got such a great... Well, it seems like people really don't want to see it. It's like, really? They sold all these tickets for an elementary school version of A Christmas Carol, but they hear I'm dreaming of a galactic Christmas with gymnastics. And they're like, oh, fuck that. I mean, I was going to give money to this elementary school so they can, in turn, give money to this orphanage, but now I'm not. That's a really good point. I didn't even think about that as... Like, wouldn't most of the people going to see it be their parents anyways? You would think. But apparently they don't have parents. Doesn't seem like adults exist, really. We don't see them, with one exception, which we'll get to. Um, so then there's kind of a weird moment where Annie, like, walks home after announcing this and everyone's grumbling about it, and Zach's like, she's not gonna get away with this. And that doesn't go anywhere. Like, she, he really doesn't do anything. Like, like, he says it in an almost, like, villainous way, but he never actually, like, he seems like a pretty nice guy and a good friend to her, and for the most part, he just kind of bow, like, bows down to her decision. Yeah, there is no sabotage taking place here. That would have been more interesting and probably would have resulted in a more complicated message, but <laughs> of course that doesn't happen. Um, immediately after this, we get introduced to the animals named after Greek philosophers, and basically their entire subplot is just like, they're arguing over which of them gets to hang their stocking in <laughs> Plato's cave. <laughs> Every other year, I get to put my stocking over Plato's fireplace. And 
at this point, you don't know that Plato is a bison, so you're thinking, wow, they're just talking about the cave from the allegory of the cave. I don't think bison live in caves, so... I don't know where that's coming from either, but no, like, they just say... Oh yeah, and I should also mention that Socrates is a bobcat and Aristotle is an otter. I'm glad that you actually kept track of what species they actually were. Yeah. I just had cat and weasel. Oh, it might have been a weasel. I thought it looked like an otter. Okay. They're kind of the same thing, right? Basically. Yeah. Who cares? So you, we are introduced to Plato just by name when they say, we're going to go and hang this in Plato's cave. <laughs> and I immediately thought like, wow, they're going to like freak out the prisoners in there. Especially because they talk about like his fireplace. Whoever came up with this idea must have felt really clever, but they don't do anything fun with it, of course. So instead, like, it's just a real fireplace, and there are apparently, like, only one of them can hang their stocking there, even though it's a pretty big fireplace. Yeah, I was expecting that when Plato came in, he would explain to them that, like, both of them can hang their stocking above the fireplace, but he doesn't. Yeah, their subplot is, like, supposedly supposed to hammer in the message about compassion it doesn't really it's pretty forgettable i don't even know how that gets resolved like i yeah i think we can mostly kind of ignore the subplot because it's very weird it's hard to describe hard to explain and it doesn't really contribute to the adaptation of a christmas carol that's going on they also have incredibly annoying voices so i think i just kind of tuned out everything they were saying and that's probably the best so i have every right to hang my stocking about the fireplace but it's my turn my turn this year there is a funny moment though where plato the bison like um Zack and Annie come into the cave talking about a Christmas carol, and Plato the Bison says, you can't go wrong with a Christmas carol. Folks, they did. They went wrong with a Christmas carol. Yeah, I think we've already shown in this podcast that there are multiple ways to go wrong with a Christmas carol, and this is just one of them. So on their way back from, like, a rehearsal or something... Annie and Zach are walking, and then, like, a small child, like, throws a snowball at them. Oh, this is my favorite character. And it almost hits them. Yay! Uh-oh. And he looks, like, really shocked that, like, it almost hit them. Like, what did he think was going to happen? He threw a snowball at them. How young is he that he, like, has no understanding of cause and effect? I think maybe they got this idea from the Reginald Owens one, where, like, he threw... Maybe? That might be. Perhaps. This is why it's important to watch so many different adaptations as we can understand the connections between them. Exactly. Um, This personally is my favorite character because, like, I I don't think we ever learn his name. Uh, He he says, like, five words. Like, I don't think... Even in the scene where he almost throws the snowball, I don't... Well, he he does throw the snowball, but it almost hits them. I don't think he actually says anything. He just kind of whimpers. Yeah, he's, I mean, when I say he's a small child, keep in mind that the main characters of the show are 10 years old, so he must be like, I don't know, five or six. Yeah, and so in case you couldn't already tell that this girl Annie is supposed to be a stand-in for Ebenezer Scrooge, she yells, bah, and then like kicks a snowman over, and like this is just very out of place for her. Like, I mean, we don't know much about this character, but I can't imagine that, like, she's an asshole in every episode, because she's, I think, the protagonist of the series. I mean, like, yeah, she seems a little bossy, 
But she's like a bossy ten-year-old kid. She's clearly already compassionate. As I'll talk about multiple times throughout this episode, like, my biggest problem with this, like, oh, she's the Scrooge character, is that, like, several times she's shown to be a pretty decent person. I think this is kind of the fundamental problem with using existing characters from something else to tell the story of A Christmas Carol, is that the whole point of the story is that Ebenezer Scrooge goes through this major moral transformation. And so, in order to do it properly, you need to, number one, have a character who is well-established to be a terrible person, and number two, induce a lasting moral transformation in them. Maybe in the next episode they can go back to being an asshole, but that kind of cheapens the point of the story. But even looking at it from an isolated perspective, Annie's transformation here is nothing remarkable because she goes from nice girl who has a bad idea to nice girl who stops having a bad idea. And the only thing that happened in between is that as she got more stressed out, she started like getting weirdly possessed by the Scrooge character and just kind of randomly lashing out. Which instead of like, oh, get it, like she's supposed to be like Scrooge, it just felt cheap. They're having the dress rehearsal for I'm Dreaming of a Galactic Christmas. Hey, watch what you're doing! And swing those back on stage! Annie is too busy doing something with a calculator uh, to actually pay attention to what's going on in the show. Don't move! Which seems like a pretty significant problem if you're directing a show. However, even though she wasn't really paying attention, she still, like, totally chews out all the kids on stage for doing stuff wrong. And, like, <laughs> they freak the fuck out at this. Like, these kids have clearly never been yelled at in their lives because the looks of horror on their face. And she barely even yells at them. When I was not much older than them, I already had experiences with a much meaner director. And I think a lot of kids who have actually done theater would watch that scene and laugh because, like, the things that she criticizes them for are so minor and so, like, impersonal. If this is supposed to establish her, like, becoming this nasty person, it doesn't really work. Like I said, she really mostly comes off as a little bossy and a little stressed out, which is understandable because she has this giant responsibility. And no adults to help her with it at the age of 10. This is how a normal 10-year-old would react to having to direct a play. This is not, like, her being not compassionate. So... As a result of her calculating, Annie figures out that they're not going to be able to give any money to the orphanage this year because of how few people are buying tickets to see I'm Dreaming of a Galactic Christmas, which, again, not sure why these audience members suddenly don't care about the orphanage. Keep in mind, she can't. It's not that, like, well, in order to, like maximize our profits we're not going to donate to the orphanage she's straight up like no there's no room in the budget for it this is not and she this is clearly stresses her out like as she says it she's like i'm sorry but like it's not if 
She's not for being this, greedy. For this to make sense, she would have to be being greedy, and she's not. This is not greed. This is, we don't have enough money for our elementary school theater program to give money to other children. In fact, I don't think I've ever been in, like, a theater troupe or whatever, like, a theater program that donates money. Like, that's not, like, a, a normal occurrence. They seem to be implying here that no matter how little money your, like, theater program makes, if you don't give money to, like, random orphanages, you're a monster. Yeah, well, to be fair, this was made by a conservative Republican, and I think it probably takes place in a world where everything is run off of private funding, well, yeah, if anything, no taxes. If anything, this only shows the problem with, like, <laughs> no safety net, because, like... The fact that these orphanages apparently have to depend on donations from, like, other kids around their age, like, putting their hard work and labor into performing a show for themselves. Even just think about it this way. Think about how sad it is that these kids can't do a show that at least one of them legitimately wants to do. No, instead they have to do the show that makes them the most money so that they can donate it to the orphanage. That's tragic. That's horrible. These kids should not be responsible for these other children. I mean- Apparently this is Ronald Reagan's wet dream. It really is. I mean, we don't see, we don't see these characters in school. It's implied, I think, that the drama club is part of the school that they go to. But we never see them in school or in class so over the course of this 45 minutes. Who knows? Maybe it's like an outside... Maybe this is like they're taking time out of their day to put on a show that they care about. It's entirely possible that they don't even go to school because in this universe, public education simply doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, I'll get into this later, but I just... I can't believe how fucked up it is that... These kids are for, like morally forced to do the same show every single year because it maximizes their profits that they can provide for other children. This is a dystopia. Anyways, so that night Annie's in her bed and Charles Dickens appears in her room. And it's interesting because earlier on Annie says that Charles Dickens would appreciate the fact that they're putting on I'm Dreaming of a Galactic Christmas. He would agree that it's a better story than A Christmas Carol. And this seems like just humble enough that you might think maybe he would. But the ghost of Charles Dickens is actually pretty offended by the fact that they're not putting on A Christmas Carol. Why do you so dislike my chronicle? I will point out though, and I'll point this out probably many times to come in this podcast, but... <laughs> I always find it funny when people just, like, assume that these authors who were clearly doing whatever they could, like, to make money to live, just assume that, like, everything that they produced was the complete, just, like, artistic... They were doing everything they did out of just a love for the arts. Like, no! Most of these authors would 100% sell out, and did, if it meant getting more money. Let's not forget that Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol in like a couple weeks, and if he hadn't published it in time, he would have been financially ruined. Yeah, so 
if Charles Dickens were in this situation and had reason to believe that I'm Dreaming of a Galactic Christmas would make more money, yeah, he probably fucking would do that instead of a Christmas carol. She wakes up. Apparently this is not just an apparition. It's a dream. And she's like... To be fair, though, I feel like that's kind of a question for the ages. Is... 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 Scrooge, I'm gonna say Scrooge, even though in this case it's not really Scrooge, um, is Scrooge dreaming these things, or are they really happening? That's, I'm honestly gonna be on the lookout for adaptations that directly address that. Yeah, in this one we do get that directly addressed, uh, it's very explicit that she is dreaming, which I think that really kind of undermines the message of the story, which is already been very undermined by the choices that they've made if this is her dream and yet she's acting like a completely different person it doesn't seem like she has any agency and if she doesn't how is that supposed to be much of a moral lesson to her well yeah that is a weird thing that like in her dreams where she is screwed she's acting completely out of character like i don't think that's how most dreams work yeah, I mean, like, I think we've all had dreams where, like, you do things that, like, you wouldn't do in real life. But here she is literally just playing Scrooge. Like I said, I think this would have been more fun if, like, they really did put on a Christmas carol. And, like, through playing the role of Scrooge, she learned some lesson. But no, instead she just dreams that she is, like, a, a gender-bent Scrooge. The lesson she learns seems weird because this dream Scrooge is clearly not... Her. It doesn't seem applicable to her situation. Yeah, I'm not sure what exactly the effect of the Scrooge dreams are supposed to have on her. Again, it doesn't seem like it has any meaningful connection to the situation that she's in, because she's not being greedy. She's not like Scrooge. Exactly. Now, going back to her Christmas Carol-related dream, of course we do finally get treated to a Christmas carol. And of course, it's that little boy who threw the snowball who is now singing God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Blah! Humbug! And I would like to point out that they cut the song right before the line about Satan. Because <laughs> maybe they thought that, like, the Christian parents who are treating their poor children to adventures from the Book of Virtues would hear the word Satan being sawn and, like, turn it off hurriedly. Yeah, Satan, you can't say Satan on PBS. Even though, you know, it's clearly to save us from Satan's power, but... And then he later on he starts singing it again, and he again stops before he gets to the Satan part. So it seems very intentional. So this kid is supposed to be Tiny Tim, but he is not Bob Cratchit's child because Bob Cratchit is played by Zack, who is a child. He also does not have any clear health problems. The only health problem that he seems to have is that he's standing around in a snowbank barefoot, which would be a very serious health problem And you might think like, oh, he has no shoes because he's poor. He has plenty of other clothing that he's wearing. It's not that. He just, shoes are the one thing he doesn't have. 
And this could have been sidestepped so easily, because even if this is an established character, I don't know if he is, but you literally just could have, like, had him, like, like in a broken leg cast with, like, crutches, like, in real life and also in the dream, and then it would have been like, ah, that's the- And it also would have made us more sympathetic for him in real life when he throws the snowball. It's like, oh, look, he's injured. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he's just a regular kid. Yeah. Also, this kid calls Annie, who is Scrooge, Mom? Blah! Humbug! Christmas a humbug, Mom? You don't mean that, I'm sure. I think they were thinking, well, we can't have these characters call her Sir. So instead of, like, ma'am, we're gonna say ma'am, but, like, how British people say it. Mum. Pretty sure that is wrong. Definitely a little weird. Um... Her first dream, however, does end in a, like, surprisingly trippy sequence where she walks to the end of the street and she sees, like, this big picture window and she looks in and it's her lying in her bed. She, like, freaks out and then wakes up. It's actually pretty cool. It's pretty cool, but... It doesn't make any sense. It's, yeah. But, you know, you gotta say something positive about every adaptation. And so that right there, that's it. That's my one positive note. <laughs> yeah. So Bob Cratchit, who is Zack, almost runs over Annie, who is Scrooge, with his horse and carriage, which he is driving alone, despite the fact that he's 10 years old. He doesn't seem to be, like, an adult in this version, even though, like, he has a job and Annie owns a business. They seem to be the same age that they are in the normal world. Another weird thing about this adaptation is that they keep, like, the dream sequences. Like, they could have just done it where, like, she has all these dreams in one night, but no, they keep breaking it up with, like, more sequences with the animals and stuff. Because some of these kids apparently are, like, just here for the animals, and they don't want to go five minutes without seeing the talking animals. Yeah, and so the animals say stupid shit like, will Annie learn her lesson about compassion? Even though, you know, the whole thing that she's so stressed out about is the fact that she can't donate money to the orphanage, which she clearly really, really wants to do. And then also, this <laughs> makes some of the lines that she says in the dream just sound so wrong. Like, when she's like, are there no prisons? Like... She clearly cares about the poor, which again just makes it clear that her dream character is not her and therefore the things that her dream character learns should not have as big effect on her in real life as they want them to. The role of Jacob Marley is played by Plato, the buffalo. It's weird enough that these kids live in a world where there are just talking animals around and it's not addressed in any way. But it seems like Scrooge, who is Annie, also lives in a world where there are just talking animals around and it's not addressed. Because she is freaked out by seeing the buffalo's face appear on her door knocker, but not by the fact that he is a buffalo. Yeah, no, that doesn't... Yeah, they talk to the talking animals like they've been friends for a long time, and this is just okay. However, we also don't see them interact with any other human characters, so this might just be, like, one of those, like, you know, one of those kids' story, like, it's their secret lives kind of thing. If anyone out there actually watched Adventures of the Book of Virtues when they were growing up, 
I would encourage you not to tell us any I honestly clarifying don't want information. To know it, I really don't. Yeah. Uh, I do want to make just really quick another note about the whole orphanage subplot. They do finally start to make her seem like a miser when she's like, no, we can't perform for the orphanage. We can only perform for, like, paying audiences. Because, like, that does seem like a good solution. Like, okay, we don't have money to give to them, but we could at least give them a performance. And then she's like, no. But this almost seems to be more an, effe- more an effect of her being influenced by Dream Scrooge. This has not been her original position all along. Only after having some of these dreams is she like, no, we can't perform for the orphanage. So if anything, these Christmas Carol-related dreams have been having a negative impact on her life. I think the implication is that she's becoming meaner because she's, like, sleep-deprived, because these weird dreams are, like, affecting her mental state in that way. Which, again, doesn't really seem to have, like, a positive message about... A Christmas Carol. Hey, it's the story of compassion. Plato, the Jacob Marley Buffalo, uh, he shows up with the chains on him, but then he just he just shakes them off, and they come off like that. Completely defeats the purpose of him wearing chains. And then they, he continues to talk about like these are the chains I forged in life, but like he's not wearing them anymore. <laughs> Also, and he also warns Annie about her chains, and I assume Annie's thinking, "Oh, well, I'll just wriggle out of them then." Also, what did he do to deserve those chains? Because <laughs> he's not Jacob Marley; he takes on the role of Jacob Marley. Well, I assume, yeah. I mean, in the same way that Annie Scrooge is not but no, Annie, it's not in the same way because no one refers to him as Jacob Marley. He's not the character <laughs> of Jacob Marley. He's just providing that purpose to the story he's not annie scrooge's former business partner though i mean i think the best way to think of this is just that like annie is thinking about the plot of a christmas carol and you know how they say that like in dreams you never see a face that you haven't seen in real life i think i heard that on a school bus once i think what we're so the audience is supposed to think here is that like she's remembering the plot of A Christmas Carol, and she's, like, just standing in the people she knows for the characters. And that's also why they only deliver, like, the classic lines and nothing, like, really personalized. That is not good television, though. Oh, no, I didn't say this was good. (laughs) I'm just trying to make sense of it. I think we've already established (laughs) that this is a pretty problematic piece of media. (laughs) Plato Marley tells... Annie Scrooge, that she will be visited by three ghosts. And she goes... Ghosts? As she is talking to a ghost. Ghosts? What do you mean, Ghost (laughs) Plato? And Ghost (laughs) Plato does the classic, like... Expect the first when the bell tolls one. And then a third. He doesn't say two. <laughs> where it's like the prank where you let pigs loose into the school. <laughs> and you paint them like one, two, and four, and so they're trying to find three. Yeah. <laughs> then of course we get her meeting the ghost of Christmas past, who is played by Aristotle the Weasel Otter. Um what's weird here is that like his ghost is floating. Which, like, is not normally done, because, like, 
in obviously in live action it would be like ridiculously expensive for yeah. no reason but also like plato's ghost marley wasn't floating either the ghosts can fly and stuff, but they don't usually just kind of hover around to mess with Scrooge. This ghost of Christmas past, Aristotle the Otter Weasel, um, shows Annie Scrooge her past memories. And like already, you might you might be thinking, what are these memories gonna be like? Are they just gonna be Scrooge's memories? No, they do kind of seem to be based in Annie's memories because even though. Zack is playing Bob Cratchit. Her memory is of, like, a younger her and a younger Zack, like, playing. I don't know if this is supposed to. Yeah. It, I don't know the intention here is that, like, Scrooge and Bob Marley grew up in this version, but grew up together. And then to make this even weirder, keep in mind these are younger versions of 10-year-olds, so they're probably, like, seven here. I put in my notes that this is the version of them from elementary school, but the normal version of them, I now realize, is in elementary school. Yeah, so this scene literally makes no sense, because, like, her- Annie Scrooge's memories are happy. Like, it's just her playing with Zack. And then it only starts to get sad when, wait for it, Kid Bob Cratchit slash Zack delivers the, like, you've changed, like, fiancé speech to Scrooge. Like, first of all, how long have they known each other? Like I said, they're, like, seven years old. Like, in what... <laughs> People love to mess with the fiancé speech, give it to the Ghost of Christmas Past or something, but I think this might be the only adaptation we'll ever look at where Bob Cratchit gives it. <laughs> Which... <laughs> I personally now really want to see a version with like a uh, like a gay Scrooge and Bob Cratchit. Like that would be real fucking awkward to have your ex boyfriend work for you as a clerk <laughs> and then to pay him like the lowest possible wage. He's just that petty from like how totally sick that breakup speech was. Um, but instead, no, it's two seven year olds talking to each other. And keep in mind, this is the kid that plays Bob Cratchit. Telling her how she's... It, this makes no sense. I'm not even gonna try to, like... And keep in mind, too, that, like, they're still friends in real life. Even throughout all of this, Zack has been nothing but kind and supportive. Like, it's not like they had... This would make more sense if they had had, like, a falling out over this, but they didn't. So I don't know what this dream is supposed to... Like, how this is supposed to relate to the real world. So then we get to the Ghost of Christmas present. Socrates the Bobcat. But he's not dressed, like, as the ghost of Christmas present. He's just, like, in a suit. Who takes Annie Scrooge to see what Bob Cratchit is up to, except Annie refers to him as Crotchet. What is Crotchet doing here of all places? And again, keep in mind, this is the same character that he, she just had that, like, weird breakup speech with. She calls him Crotchet. And I don't know whether this was their very misguided attempt at doing a British accent, or if this is, like, a very subtle PG-rated insult. I think it's probably the first one, considering the whole, like, mum thing. And Cratchit also calls her mum. So we find out- The more I think about this, the more my head hurts. I didn't even think about the whole, like, wait, that's Kid Cratchit until now. And now I wish I hadn't thought about it. Anyway, anyway, um... So we see here, of course, Bob Cratchit doesn't have, like, a family of his own, because he's ten. 
So instead, he's just like donating presents to the orphans. Now, really think about the message here. Bob Cratchit is poor. The moral implication here is that if you're poor, you should be giving all of your money to help even poorer people. Note that no one in this adaptation is rich. This adaptation, made by a Ronald Reagan lackey, does not address the moral responsibilities that the rich have to the poor. Only what the poor have to the slightly more poor. (laughs) (laughs) What we're trying to say here is Republicans are bad. This is like literally it's just a capitalist hellscape. <laughs> Charles Dickens would hate this so much. He really would. Like, note that in the original, like, Bob Cratchit does what he can to support his family, but he's not going around like helping other families. He can't. And he shouldn't be morally obligated to because there are people much richer, like Scrooge, who should be doing that for him. The implications of this part get really weird when you combine it with the fact that Annie, in the normal universe, is made to feel guilty about the fact that she's incapable of helping the orphans with the money that she doesn't have. The message here apparently is, yeah, you might be poor, but (laughs) like a Peter Singer kind of like, if you're not giving all of your extra money all the time to people less fortunate than you, then you're a bad person. When Annie sees the orphans, she recognizes the Tiny Tim one, and she says, I know that child. He threw a snowball at me. Which I just have to say, that was in the other reality. (laughs) She's like, is he he going to be okay? He doesn't seem sick. He doesn't seem disabled. And also, when she does see his future, he doesn't die. It's just that he can't play outside anymore. The future scene also doesn't make any sense because the ghost of Christmas present is like, see what you could be doing, and then Bob Cratchit gives him shoes. So in the future one, without Scrooge doing anything at all because Bob Cratchit already gave him the shoes, in the future he should just have shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Scrooge literally does not play a role here. Also, Tiny Tim is never addressed by name. So like, we're... (laughs) We're left to believe that he is Tiny Tim, despite the fact that he doesn't have a disability, doesn't die, isn't Bob Cratchit's kid, and doesn't have a name, based (laughs) solely on the fact that he plays that part of the story. Because he's supposed to be sick, even though there's no evidence to show this. Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking around this point, when the ghost of Christmas yet to come comes... How is, like, the gravestone scene gonna play out? Oh, also I should point out, the ghost of Christmas yet to come is played by, like, a bird who, unlike the other talking animals, does not appear in the rest of the episode. Well, to be fair, this isn't a talking animal. This is an ominously silent animal. I think we're supposed to believe that this animal could talk, but chooses not to? That is definitely more ominous. Because it's not really ominous if, like, oh, the bird isn't talking. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good point. (laughs) Yeah, so if you're like me, you might be thinking, how are they going to do this gravestone scene considering that Scrooge is not an old man? The answer is they do it anyway, even though it's way more fucked up now. Because, like, wait, are you... (laughs) Clearly not much time has passed because we see this tiny Tim character and he looks the same. However, Annie Scrooge is dead. And we don't know how or why she dies because 
Again, she's 10. Yeah, apparently she died at like 12, probably from being smited by God for not being compassionate enough. And this is like the fundamental problem that a lot of adaptations (laughs) run into, which is the fact that the part where Scrooge sees his gravestone is not meant to indicate that if you are not nice to people, you will die. We will all die. Everyone dies, especially old men. The point is... Not that he dies, but that when he dies, no one mourns him. Well, yeah, because we don't even see, like, I think another problem, too, is that they don't make it clear that, like, this is his funeral. Like, they just bring him to his tombstone, where it's like, well, maybe it's been here for years. Yeah. Like, I think it's kind of important to show, like, him, like, that he's been freshly buried, because then it's so much more heartbreaking that nobody's at his gravestone. (laughs) Like, instead, Annie Scrooge just sees this tombstone. You know, maybe it's been here for, like, five years. And she's so spooked out by this. Understandably. Because apparently the message here to children is, Hey, kids, if you're not compassionate enough... And keep in mind that this adaptation's definition of compassion is giving the money you don't have to people slightly less fortunate than you. That if you aren't compassionate in this extremely Republican way, you will die. Yeah. Yawn. Mm-hmm. Maybe horribly. And nobody will mourn you. Real Annie wakes up and she, I guess, has a change of heart. Because... Again, this is really undramatic because presumably she was already a pretty nice and fun kid. We see this from some of her friendly interactions with the talking animals and Zack. She was clearly just pretty stressed out about, you know, having to organize a play at 10 years old. So now this burden has been lifted from her for some reason, and she's, like, laughing and playing around with Zack. And it's like, okay, so now she's just a little less stressed out. This wasn't, like, a dramatic transformation of character. She seems like she was she's just acting like a kid again. And then she goes to the orphanage where the kid who threw the snowball at her. Okay, so this is where they finally make it clear that he's an orphan. Like, there's nothing about the building that he lives in that makes it clear it's an orphan. It just kind of looks like a big house. Uh, And she tells the, I guess, the owner of the orphanage. The one adult we see. The only adult in the entire episode. I said we would get to that. He's the only adult, I guess, in the whole town. And he makes it... He seems to make it clear that he's gonna, like, beat this kid for throwing this snowball. Like, he's not a positive role model. And she just kind of, like, tells him, hey, don't. Because I'm nice now. I will point out that this kid doesn't face any repercussions for, like... I mean, yeah, throwing a snowball at someone is not that big of a deal, but it's still not a nice thing to do, just to, like, a stranger. And instead, he seems to be encouraged to do this. Like, Annie... Like, gives him a snowball, and she, he throws it. Like, this doesn't seem like a positive behavior to reinforce. He throws it at her while she's walking away. So I guess the definition of compassion, in addition to everything else that we've said so far, is that when someone throws a snowball at you, you help them throw another snowball at when you. When somebody hurts you, to make this a broader statement, when somebody does even a small amount of harm to you, you should still be compassionate to them, even if that compassion means them continuing to hurt you, which does seem like a pretty Republican way of thinking. So Annie announces that they are, in fact, going to do a Christmas carol after all. Even though this doesn't address how the drama club is going to afford to do shows in the future. Right. 
She seems to think that because not doing a Christmas Carol lowered the amount of ticket sales that they had been able to get, she seems to think that doing a Christmas Carol instead of Galactic Christmas will magically make those ticket sales come back. Even though it's, like, already Christmas. <laughs> yeah, it's it's too late. She announces that she's going to give all of the money they receive from all of the ticket sales to the orphanage, which I assume means that the drama club is going to go bankrupt. <laughs> yeah, it really, like, give all the money you don't have, kids. Don't leave anything for yourself. Yeah. The government will not help you. I think that's just about everything there is to say about Adventures of the Book of Virtues, the story of compassion, A Christmas Carol, parts one and two. This is the first one we've seen that I really like. Like, I've made fun of Gorgo's A Christmas Carol. I've made fun of the Vincent Price version, but that was like harmless, like, oh, that was kind of a weird thing they did. This is the first one I actually like actively dislike because I think it twists the message. This one is bad, and the people who made it are bad. Basically. Like, I actively believe that children who grew up watching this version are worse people <laughs> than the kids who grew up watching almost any other version. So I'm really sorry for any listeners <laughs> out there who are like, but I love adventures from the Book of Virtues. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry that your parents did this to you. But I'm not taking what I said back. I just want to point out that we're not, like, nitpickers here. We're trying to look at the whole picture, the broad themes of the work, rather than just identify, like, oh, here's a continuity error. How well, stupid you know, we're not we're not cinema sins. There are continuity errors. I do want to say that. Yeah, and we'll point those out mostly because they give us a chuckle. But then we'll also talk about... You know, periodically, not just like at the end or the beginning, but periodically throughout. Like, here's a theme that we've identified. And pretty much all the other ones we've looked at. Like, it's easy to make fun of the Vincent Price one for, like, having the guy who just looks like an exec. I'm gonna bring him up every episode. The guy who just <laughs> looks like an executive who put on a robe and now he's the ghost of Christmas present. Hi, I'm the ghost of Christmas present. That was fun to make fun of, but it doesn't fundamentally change the message. And keep in mind, I want to say this right now, changing the message is not necessarily a bad thing. There are going to be several books that we look at that I have ideological problems with, and sometimes modern adaptations will update this message and make it more, you know, whether it's more inclusive or like, that was a weird racist thing in the book, they changed that, that sort of thing. But when you take what was already a pretty progressive message... And then replace it with one that's, like, actively more detrimental to society. That's a bad adaptation. I won't call many adaptations bad, but I will call them bad if that's what they do. And that's what this did. I will say, though, because there's always got to be, like, a silver lining. It's entertaining. That's it's true. <laughs> we had a lot of fun watching it. I think we had the most laughter in this episode than even... In the Screw Gorgo one, which was pretty funny. We clearly got a kick out of it. I won't recommend you guys watch it because I think it's a waste of your time. There are funnier things out there. But, you know, if you're a completionist... I think we've run out of things to say. Has this been our longest episode? We're gonna cut this off here because this is the first episode that we've done, which is 
longer than the thing we're talking about, and that seems like maybe a problem. I have to edit this. That's going to take like four or five hours. All that I have left to say is that I have been Ben Schultz. I've been Nora Schultz. And you have been listening to Trying to Adapt. Thank you.